Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Figure out what that heat is set on and set it about uh, three degrees cooler next week. Yeah, speaking of hot and cold, this weather is torquing me off. <laughs> All these teaser snows, you know. Kind of makes things a little pretty, but like today, just enough to make the road slick, not enough to really enjoy and play, and not super cold. I love building fires, but it's not quite cold enough to justify, I don't know, try to save my wood for when we need it, but I'm starting to despair if we'll ever need it this winter, but... Let's just agree that God will send sub-zero temperatures and mountains of snow. I'm not going to get too many amens on that, right? All right, all right. We'll settle for turning the heat down. So, good morning, Living Word Family Church. Good morning to those of you watching at home. Hope to see you here next week or very, very soon. Uh, I read a, uh, I'll share this with you. It has nothing to do with my message or anything else. It just really ministered to me. This was a Facebook post by Laura Cook, Tony Cook's daughter. I thought this was very, very nice. It said this, I don't know about you guys, but I'm ready for some precedented times. (laughs) I don't know about you guys, but I'm ready for some precedented times. We are living in unprecedented times. I'm ready for some precedented times. I thought that was pretty good. All right. Hey, uh, we're going to be talking a little bit today about the fast. Seven days down. How's it going? 14 to go? Is it good fast? Hungry? feel like you're making progress, yeah, let, t- don't talk to me now, but send me messages, things that maybe God is speaking to you about or showing you about yourself during this fast. Um, I want to, before I get into the message this morning, I want to point out that we moved Mission Sunday. Mission Sunday is usually the first Sunday of the month where we take up uh, two offerings, and that second mission offering goes into the mission fund. We as a church, out of your tithes and the general offering, we as a church give a certain amount uh, every month to missions. And uh, that goes into a mission fund out of which we write checks to support the, the, the ministries that we've been connected with, many of them for many, many years, even decades. And uh, that, that first extra offering of the month goes into that mission fund for that, for an extra supply. So when we have perhaps a guest speaker or somebody, even one of the ministries we support, we can supplement their offering out of that mission fund and a number of other things. But also, if we have a representative of one of those ministries or another missionary here, um, when we take up an offering, that's usually our mission offering for that month. Today, uh, the reason we, d- we pushed the mission offering back to today is it's a Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Now, I don't believe in celebrating sanctity of human life one day a year any more than I believe celebrating the resurrection once a year. I mean, this is something we are about. It's something God is clearly about, the sanctity of human life, right? Uh, but this, uh, today's mission offering, there'll be two uh, offering receptacles out there if you want to write an extra check sometime, as long as you can do it while you are listening to my sermon so that you can drop that uh, in the bucket on your way out. That will go, uh, as, uh, as you know, to Living Alternatives Pregnancy Resource Center. This is a ministry that we as a church have been connected with from the beginning, I think. We, have, we are longtime supporters of that ministry. We, we as a church, through our regular giving and through the Walk for Life and the banquets, 
have given tens, probably hundreds of thousands of dollars to that ministry. We've been a great source of support, and I'm not saying that to brag. Uh, I guess I am kind of bragging on you, but mostly it's just something that that is, uh, it's always been kind of the heartbeat of this church, a defense of the preborn and uh, just the recognition of the sanctity of human life. And this is a, a Living Alternatives is a wonderful, wonderful ministry. And of course, you know, Greta attends here and, and, and Carolyn, and we've got so many people who have contributed to, I mean, worked uh, boots on the ground in this ministry for years. And uh, most of you know, not all of you, most of you know that Riley and Rainey, our two children, we adopted through the Pregnancy Resource Center uh, at birth. And uh, so we are... Uh, enjoying the fruits of that ministry most of that most of the time beth made a beth made a great comment we we were privileged over the years to have been able to speak at, at several uh banquets uh for living alternatives and beth made uh, made a comment one time during her speech that um we we uh, be, that we have children we have a family due to the ministry of living alternatives and she says so we most of the time, we thank God for you, but sometimes we wonder if we can sue you. Uh, <laughs> something like that. But no, that was, number one, that was totally a joke. And number two, it's really rarely we even kind of feel like that. We love you guys. We love you guys. Uh, <laughs> anyway, at... Uh, at, at one of those banquets, I was, uh, and, and really more than one, it's usually in my preparatory remarks, one of the things I absolutely love about Living Alternatives is, you know, there's a, there's a place uh, and even a ministry of, of sorts for the political angle. There are people I believe God has called to fight this battle on the legal front. Uh, it's a constitutional issue, and the constitutional arguments are stronger than ever. I don't know if the Supreme Court is ever going to overturn Roe v. Wade. I've been disappointed with some, uh, with some of the, the level of inaction on that front, especially uh, since the science has progressed so much since Roe v. Wade became the law of the land. But I'll just say what I've always, uh, what I've said over, over the years, which is this boils down to, is that a life or is it not? That fetus, that tissue, is that a baby or is it not? And science has settled that issue. That's why you never really hear it argued it's not really a baby. It's always argued on, on the grounds of, does a woman have the right to do what she wants with her own body? Uh, I, was, I was reading about a cold case the other day. It's not, it's not a super old case, but, but I had never heard of it. It, was just, it just showed up because uh, this, this kid, this young guy, had just been released from prison and exonerated of charges of killing his soon-to-be stepmom, I think, and she was pregnant. And he was charged with, guess what? Double homicide. Now, if that is not a life, then it's not a life. It, can, it can't just be a life if the woman intends to carry this baby to term. That kid, if he... And it's looking, I, I don't know if, if, he ever, if he did it or not, but whoever killed this woman and her baby either killed two people or one. It's not up to the woman to decide that. It's either a life or it's not. And so I, the legal things just kind of drive me nuts because it's so illogical and it's so ill-applied in so many cases. But what I love about living alternatives is that's really not their mission. Not that, they don't, not that they ignore that and not that they haven't brought in great speakers to address that. What's their mission? The front lines. 
ministering to young women, ministering to, to, to whole, not just young women, uh, but young men, and, uh, and not so young people who find themselves faced with this decision and encouraging them and equipping them to affirm life, to choose life. Uh, that's the beauty of it. Uh, I'm not going to tell Riley's story right now, but many of you have heard it, but it always has blessed me how uh, this, uh, and it's kind of tragic how his birth mom just never even considered that there was another option. She wasn't evil or anything like that when she, when she went to a uh, uh, pregnancy resource center, but she was looking for help with an abortion. And uh, thank God, you know, the, the people at pregnancy resource center didn't, didn't uh, slap her upside the head and say, what's the matter with you? Uh, that's a life, and let's look at the legal argument. They said, hey, here's, here, here's a good life option for you if you're not equipped to uh, raise this child. And uh, adoption was it, and we were blessed, continue to be blessed. And uh, so blessed we did it again 18 months later. And uh, so I thank God for this ministry, and I encourage you to support them. Again, if you want to uh, prepare an extra offering, uh, you, can, you can signal the ushers at the appropriate time if you want to make it cash. But give generously into that and continue to lift that ministry up in your prayers, uh, especially on today, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Now, there are a number of things I want to share with you today uh, to encourage you regarding the value of this fast. And I'm going to talk about a lot of things uh, by way of illustration, so you're going to have to bear with me. We will get to the spiritual things. Uh, but I think it'll help me to lay some groundwork in how to think about some of the scripture we're going to read if I tell you uh, a few stories first. Um, and I'll start with this one. Many of you, depending on how long you've been around, how long you've known me, you may remember that I used to run a lot. I'm glad I didn't hear that much laughter. <laughs> Just some giggles, maybe. But I did. I did a lot of recreational running my last two years of high school. Used to just run every morning, just to really just to keep in shape. I wasn't an athlete. I wasn't on a team, but I just I enjoyed the running, and it was and it enabled me to eat whatever I wanted, as long as I ran enough. And then I, uh, I threw out most of my time in the guard. You know, had to always be able to pass a PT test, so there was always a little bit of running there. And then off and on over the years, and I started running regularly again. And I don't know, it was shortly after Beth and I moved back to St. Joe. In, uh, see, we moved back here in 97. So 97 or 98, somewhere in there I started running again. And it uh, took me a while to get really back into it. But about that time, a friend of mine who was, uh, he and his wife were living out in Los Angeles, invited Beth and me to come out and visit and suggested that we time our visit in such a way that I would be able to run the Los Angeles Marathon with him. That's something that we could just do together. And he had done it the year before and said he really learned a lot and enjoyed it and he thought I would too. So I said, yeah, I, can, I guess I can, I can consider that. I'd never considered running that kind of distance before. That wasn't really, the super distance, those long distances really weren't uh, what I was about. But he talked me into it. And one piece of advice he gave me in terms of preparing for this race was to read. He said, read a lot. There's some great books out there that won't just encourage you, but they'll tell you how training for a marathon is different. Uh, wildly different than training for a 5K or a 10K. And this, this is the part that kind of fascinates me, and it won't fascinate everybody, but fascinates me, and I have the microphone, so you're going to hear it. The, uh, 
and, and for those of you who have a medical training and, and know a lot more about the, the science behind this, I'm sure I'm going to get some of the terminology wrong. Just bear with me. I think I have the, the, the general contours of this down correctly. Uh, the, the most efficient fuel, readily available fuel in your body is something called glycogen. It's stored in the muscles. It's, uh, it's, it's released into the bloodstream for immediate use when you are exercising, walking, running, swimming, whatever. Uh, and you can store, a average healthy person can store about 2,000 calories worth of glycogen in their muscles. And then once you expend that glycogen, your body turns to other energy sources. Now, many people, I'm told, consume more than 2,000 calories a day. And once your body has stored 2,000 calories or its maximum fuel capacity of glycogen, it converts these sugars into a different yeah, fat. Yeah, that energy then is stored in fat cells for your reserve. That's your reserve fuel. And if you never burn up all that glycogen and, uh, then, and you continue to refuel at a rate faster than you are burning it off, you're going to store more and more of this energy in fat. Most of us understand that. So here's the interesting thing. The same average person with 2,000 calories of glycogen in his muscles, uh, that is enough fuel to go about 20 miles. Jogging, walking, running. 2,000 calories will get you about 20 miles. Well, how long is a marathon? 26.2 miles. And you can't train yourself to store any more glycogen. So what happens at that, about that 20-mile mark? For a well-trained person now, uh, they run out of glycogen and their body has to, sw has to switch fuel tanks. Anybody have an old truck maybe that has uh, two fuel tanks? And have you ever, has anybody but me ever experienced this when you realize, oh my goodness, I'm low, and you switch fuel tanks while you're driving down the road? Do you ever experience that where it just kind of stutters for a second? It's probably not supposed to do that, but has anybody experienced that besides me where you're just switching tanks? Yeah, some of you know what I'm talking about. That's what happens to your body. And when it happens, whether it happens, you know, some people, you might, a bigger guy like me probably is, is going to experience it a little bit earlier. Uh, it's called hitting the wall. When I have exhausted my stores of ready avail readily available high-quality fuel and I'm switching tanks to where it's burning my reserve fuel, of which I have plenty right now, but everybody's got some. There's that process your body goes through switching from one fuel system to another. Now, once you have made that switch, once your body starts burning that alternate fuel, then you get what's called your second wind, and you start running efficiently on that secondary fuel source. Now, praise and worship team, come on up. No, I'm kidding. Where are you, where are you going with this? But that's what makes the, the marathon kind of uh, mysterious and magical, is it, it, it gets you to the point where you are going to exhaust your ready, readily available fuel, and you've got those six miles to worry about on the other side of that in a marathon. Um, that concept, by the way, is behind, for instance, the keto diet, which is, uh, I, it works. I don't know if it works for the reasons they say, but the whole idea is the keto diet teaches your body to burn fat as its primary fuel source. So you don't have to, you know, load, you know, don't carbo load for a race. You just train your body to, to burn uh, oils and meat and things like that. It's all fascinating, but what's it have to do with fasting or anything spiritual? Hang on, 
Just remember that stuff, and I will circle back to it. But think about this meanwhile. I have heard and taught for years, and I'm not, I'm not getting ready to contradict this. So we're just going to look at it from a different angle. Something like this, that Bible study, prayer, church services, these are the things that we do to feed our spirits, even our devotional time. This is our nutrition, right? We are nourished and strengthened by the word, by prayer, by fellowship, and that we go out and spend that strength or expend that energy, that power in the work of the gospel. And so we got to come together, go back to the word, spend time in prayer to uh, refill our tanks. And there's certainly a great deal of truth to that. Uh, remember the old, there was an old Amy Grant song called Fat Baby. It talked about a, a guy who went to church all the time and he had the great big beautiful Bible and he was, uh, he, he, he'd been fed and fed and fed but didn't do anything. And even in this song, it really limited doing things to going deeper into doctrine and things like that. But, uh, and, and there's, there's a certain amount of truth to that when we talk about is study and prayer, is that work or is that preparation? Is that nutrition or is that expenditure? Uh, because we can't preach the gospel if we don't know doctrine. And we can't do the will of God without knowing the will of God. And we can't know the will of God without Bible study and truly hearing from heaven in prayer. So to that extent, I agree with the concept of all of these things are feeding our spirits in preparation for the work. Because, but here's where it gets a little where I'm going to kind of uh, counter some of this, because the corollary is that when we go out and do the work of the gospel, we are, we are emptying ourselves of that strength. That we, when we preach and teach and heal and deliver, we are drawing on those energy stores and, and maybe even depleting those energy stores so that, again, we need to get back in church, back to the Bible, back to prayer, Worship, fellowship, so that we can refuel, refill the tanks. And if that's as far as it goes, is that what this fast is about? If the central point of the fast is to recenter our, our lives around the word and prayer, then that would mean the main goal of this fast is to stay full, more effectively refill our tanks. Or uh, now let me switch to another uh, illustration. The military, I don't know how recently they adopted this phrase. I only recently became familiar with it, um, called the uh, performance triad. Are you familiar with that? Okay. The performance triad. And this is mostly in the military medical community when they talk about this. And it simply states that the three most important elements of overall health are quality sleep, increased activity, and improved nutrition. Sleep, exercise, or activity, and nutrition. This is the performance triad. Now, obviously, the mission of the Army, as well as the mission of the lesser military services, just making sure everybody's paying attention, there's no, boy, that's, Pastor Mike almost always has a smile on his face, but man, I just insulted the Navy kind of sidewise, and you know I don't mean it, brother, right? Okay. So anyway, the mission of the Army and other service branches is, uh, is not to improve sleep or nutrition or activity levels. That's not their mission. What's their mission? 
fighting wars, defending the country, right? Ultimately, that's the mission of the military. Uh, but the performance triad is simply a means to do that most effectively. And they do, you know, one of the, some of the toughest training that uh, uh, soldiers and sailors and airmen and Marines go through are types of training that deprive you of nutrition, deprive you of sleep. They usually don't deprive you of activity, but they just show you how uh, um, crazy it can be if you try to do all the activity without meeting the requirements of nutrition and sleep. You know, if you just sleep and eat, you're not going to achieve maximum health. If you just sleep and exercise, or if you just eat and exercise, if you, if you leave one of those pieces of that triad or that triangle out, you are not going to be at optimum health. You need all three. But there's also a lot more that goes into being an effective uh, member of the military. That's not just health. It's not just sleeping, eating, and uh, exercising. There's study. There's knowledge. Uh, one of the first things that impressed me when I started to meet peers that had been in the military uh, was just how many things they knew that I didn't know, how much training they had been through that was, that was mental. And uh, it's the same with every occupation, no matter what your job is. Number one, you will do it better, uh, you'll be safer in doing it, and you will enjoy it more if you get proper rest, if you stay fit, and if you eat right. But, as, same with, with not just the military, not with anything, not just with ministry, every job you ever have done, you had to acquire some knowledge to do it. You had to learn some things. And the idea of work that you are putting into that changes at different stages in your career. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. A football player, even a professional football player. What's the purpose? Okay, to play the game, right? Defeat your opponent, score touchdowns, prevent your opponent from scoring touchdowns. So here's the question, is if that's the purpose, that's what a football player does, is practice work? Is football practice doing the work of a football player? Or is only playing the game doing the work? of football? What about studying uh, film, game film? What about going over the playbook? Can you really separate the preparation and the practice from the job of the game? I don't think you can. College students, they study, supposed to, attend classes. And the immediate goal is to what? Master the material so that you can pass a test so that you can receive your, uh, your degree. But all of that really is just more preparation for the job you hope to get after graduation. But meanwhile, is the study work? Yeah, I think it is. The papers, the tests, even the classes. Back to the military example, basic training. <sighs> Drill sergeants are scary. At least mine were scary way back in the 80s. And mine was scary. First time I met him, I mean, it just chilled me. But I also liked him. Senior drill sergeant for my platoon was a guy named Larry Swint, and what I wouldn't give to find him today. I don't know if he's still alive, still around, whatever. But I would love to meet him today, love to shake his hand, uh, because he was, he could be as mean as any drill sergeant. He was tough, he was knowledgeable. But he 
did tell us on the very first night that we met him that he was a Christian. He told the whole platoon, I am a Christian and I believe in the Bible. And he was telling us that to let us know where he was coming from, what sort of things he wouldn't tolerate in the barracks and that sort of thing. Uh, but it didn't make him any nicer. You know, I wanted to let, hey, I'm a Christian too, Sarge. <laughs> but I just kind of kept my mouth shut. I didn't want to, you know, try to play that too much. Uh, but that knowledge did allow me to trust him a little more. And I've told you stories about how the first 48 hours, it was just such culture shock. All I could think about was trying to get out of there. But once that subsided and we got into a little more routine of long training days, little bit of sleep, mountains of information to absorb. I mean, that was, boy, the things you were expected to know and how quickly you were expected to know them. It was almost overwhelming. But one of the other things, some of the funner stuff, if you were in decent shape, were the road marches, the runs where you had cadences, and the drill sergeant would be out there. You know what a cadence is, right? Drill sergeant will sing out something, you just repeat, C-130 rolling down the strip, <laughs> and you repeat it back to me, right? Standing tall and looking good, ought to be in Hollywood. <laughs> so, so that's, what, that's the kind of stuff we do, and it just sort of, it, it broke up the monotony of getting from one place to the other. One night, this was maybe halfway through basic training, and this was shortly after lights out, Sergeant Swint came into our barracks, and he said this. He said, sing this cadence with me, Outlaws. That was our company nickname, Outlaws. Wasn't crazy about them, not, not crazy about it now. But he said, sing this song with me, and remember what this is all about. So sing this with me. I'll be the drill sergeant, and you're the privates in the, in the barracks. Good night, my privates. Good night, drill sergeant. Someday in a combat zone, what you learn will bring you home. Good night, outlaws. And he shut the door. Wow. It really stuck with me because it drove home the idea that everything that we were doing, everything that we were learning, everything that we were enduring was at least ideally designed to maximize our chances for survival and success on the battlefield. That was the point of this. There's more I could say, and I may say in the near future, about the actual desire for combat. I'll save that for a different message. But I need to move on today if I'm going to get where I'm really going with this. So let me ask you this. What is the work of the gospel? We talked about this when we introduced our vision statement here, live the gospel, preach the gospel. What is the work of the gospel? Jesus said this, the son of man has come to seek and save that which was lost. And 1 John 3, 8 says this, for this purpose, the son of man was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now, what did Jesus do? Uh, how did Jesus seek and save the lost? How did he go about destroying the works of the devil? What did he do everywhere he went? Preaching, teaching, healing, and delivering. The works of the devil are ignorance of God, which preaching addresses. Ignorance of his word, which teaching addresses. Sickness, which healing addresses and bondage, which deliverance addresses. 
So we've got ignorance of God, ignorance of God's word, sickness and bondage. Those are the works of the devil that Jesus came to destroy. And when Jesus laid down the great commission, what was it that he told us to do? Well, one thing he said is, you'll do the works that I do and greater works than these. But ultimately and most succinctly, to preach the gospel, preach the good news to the whole world. This is the work of the gospel. So we're back to this idea, our purpose, here and now our purpose. Remember, we were created for what? Were we created for the purpose of preaching the gospel? We were created for the purpose of being in relationship with God. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So, but while we are here in these jars of clay, walking on this soil, while we are in this world, our purpose is to do the works that he did. Our purpose is to destroy the works of the devil, to preach the gospel. And again, we come to understand it this way, that if the only things we do uh, to be healthy are two of the three things. If we just sleep and eat or just eat and exercise, we're going to miss it. We have to have all these things. So we must eat uh, or draw nourishment spiritually now from the word and from prayer. We rest in the form of fellowship and we exercise. That's usually understood to be the actual doing, the work of the gospel. The nutrition is the word and prayer. The rest is the fellowship and the preaching is the work, or the work is the exercise. So when we fast, as we are doing, uh, we are depriving ourselves of certain food to remind us of what? That our bodies don't need nutrition? Don't think so. You know, one of the things I'm fasting is meat. And is meat bad? Well, some people will say it is, but come on. Most of us know it's not. It's good. It's an important source of uh, protein and other necessary nutrients. No, but the whole point of this fast is what? To get our attention on God. Because when we hunger and we go to reach for something that we normally would, would, would reach for to satisfy that hunger, we remember, ah, I can't have that, can't have that candy bar, can't have that steak that I usually keep in my desk or whatever. I'm reminded, why? Am, oh, I, I'm not doing that. Why? I remind myself to pray. And as often as I experience those, those desires, and this is why I encourage you, fast something that gets your attention daily, at least, if not multiple times a day, is that will remind you, this is how often I should be turning my thoughts toward God, getting my eyes on him, praying, spending that time in his word. Many of you have experienced in the past that God will use this three-week fast not to, not to just give you a productive and powerful three weeks, but to actually work in you some long-term changes that'll make for a more productive spiritual life overall. Just as you realize during, during the fast, during the physical portion of the fast, that there are some uh, dietary changes that you're making for three weeks that could be instituted on a more long-term basis. Not that you can never have sugar again, but maybe you can say, I'm going to, you know, if I can go without it for three weeks, I probably don't need to have it three times a day. God will use this time to reveal just how much we lack in our appreciation of the power of prayer and Bible study. Because here's where I'm really going. Look at what Jesus said in John chapter 4. You can, I want you to open your Bibles to this if you've got them. Look at what Jesus said in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 27. Now this is right after his encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. He has this conversation with her about living water. 
And we pick it up in verse 27, John 4, 27. At this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her, water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all the things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat, which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Now, this is funny just right there because they've already seen Jesus multiply the bread and the fish. They know what he's capable of doing. They've seen him, they've seen his power. And it's like they, they, they recognized apparently that he'd gone without food for some time. They're hungry. They assume he's hungry too. Rabbi, we've got this break. This woman just went away. Before you start ministering again, eat something. He says, I've got food that you're not aware of. And so they just look, who, who brought the Lord a sandwich? Who, who already took care of this? Maybe they were just curious, or maybe it's like, who's the brown noser? Here we are coming to tell him to eat while somebody is, is, is slipping him food uh, without letting everybody else know. And Jesus said to them in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Now, we know that Jesus was in the habit of spending time with God, God the Father, in prayer. We know that he had studied the scriptures from his youth, and we know that his early mastery of them, which stunned the scholars of his day, was ultimately because he was the author of those scriptures, right? But remember that Jesus, God the Son, operated and lived as a man, empowered by the Spirit, just as we can and should be. So this devotional time that Jesus, the, the Bible shows us, shows, uh, shows us Jesus getting up a great while before day, spending time with the Father. All these things were necessary for him to do the things he did. Jesus had rest in the form of fellowship with his disciples. Jesus was nourished by prayer and the word. And as a result, when the time came to work, Jesus was always ready. He was always full, full of that nourishment, rested up, ready to do the work, except that's not really what Jesus is saying here, is it? He's saying here, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. I'm going to be wrapping it up by drawing three conclusions here. One is that we can be encouraged in our work for the Lord, in that the very thing, in the, the very doing of the things that we're called to do, in the midst of that, will be nourished and strengthened. Be not weary in well-doing the nutrients in the form of word and prayer uh, being drained by the preaching, teaching, and healing is not 100% right, not according to what Jesus says here. Remember also the temptation episode, 40 days, a 40-day fast, a real fast. He's hungry, and the, and the devil comes to him and says, well, if you're hungry, why don't you turn these stones into bread? And what does Jesus say? Man shall not live by bread alone. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. Here's, this, here's the main point that I really want to drive home today is that often the separation between what we perceive as filling up our tanks, so to speak, and the spending of ourselves in service of the gospel is a, uh, it's a false distinction. I don't think we can really separate those two. Just like a study is work, if you're a student, even though your long-term goal is something else, study is still work, right? 
Writing those papers is still work. Practice is still work for the football player. Training is still work for the soldier. Study, devotion, devotionals, and prayer are all part of the work of the gospel, not just preparation for it, not just nutrition for it. And the work of the gospel is not only an expenditure of spiritual power, but an actual source of spiritual power. It's kind of like, remember the uh, elusive search for the perpetual motion machine? Scientists were trying to come up uh, with, with, the, with the machine. that Once you got it going, it didn't need fuel. It didn't need any outside energy to keep it going. And they come close. You get one that will go a long time, but every now and then it's still going to need a push. It's going to need something from outside. This is kind of the deal where we do need strength from God to do what he's called us to do. But as we do it, the very doing of it feeds us. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. More specifically, though, especially considering our time in this, in this fast, is this. Prayer, in particular, is certainly not just about us being filled and nourished. Look at James chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. If, is, anyone among, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed any sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Prayer is absolutely part of the doing. It is part of the work. In fact, I maintain it is the most important doing that we can do. Well, there's nothing else I can do. I guess I'll just pray. You should start there, brother. Start there, sister. Because you're never going to do anything that's more important or more effective than pray. If you don't pray, it doesn't get done. It's God doing it all anyway. Even if you're out there doing the work, are you going to take credit for that? Or are you going to give God glory for the strength, for the opportunity, for the giftings that you did it with? It's all God anyway, right? Let's involve him from the beginning and just say, God, do this. If you desire to use me to do it, I'll do it. But start with prayer. Quickly, and we'll be done. Praise and worship team, just to let everybody know we really are almost done. Praise and worship team, you can come on up here. The effectual or effective Fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So if our prayers are going to be the doing, if they're going to work, they have to be effective prayers, they have to be fervent prayers, and they have to be offered by righteous people. So, effective prayer is this. Prayer that is offered in faith, the prayer of faith will save the sick. That means it's based on God's revealed will. Effective prayer isn't, God, here's something I want, and I don't know if you want it for me or not, but can I please have it? I'm not saying God will never answer that prayer. 
just saying God hasn't promised to answer that prayer. Effective prayer says, God, your word says this. I'm not seeing it in my life, but I claim it. I desire it. I know you desire it for me, so I thank you for it and receive it in Jesus' name. But that means you need to study the word. You can't pray effectively unless you're praying God's will, and you can't pray God's will if you don't know it and you can't know it without the word of God, which means that study is also part of the work of God, not just preparation for the work of God. Fervent prayer is just what it sounds like. It's heartfelt, it's urgent, and again, faith-filled. Fervent prayer is fervent because the person offering a fervent prayer is convinced that prayer works, that it makes a difference. This is another great value of the fast. It quickly turns our hearts and minds toward prayer as a habit. And finally this, righteous the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man. Who is the righteous person? Who is willing to say, my prayers are effective because I pray fervently and I am righteous? If your righteousness has anything to do with how effective your prayers are, we want to be able to say we're righteous, right? Well, guess what? Good news. Who, are, who is the righteous man? Who is the righteous woman? That's you. That's me if we are saved. Never, ever, ever forget that. You are qualified to pray effectively because the righteousness that you are clothed with, as far as God is concerned, is the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Stand up with me. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.